If you will, take your Bibles and turn to uh, 1 Kings chapter 18. 1 Kings chapter 18. I want to warn you that you're going to need to keep your Bible open this morning because every scripture we read is not going to be on the screen. There will, there will be some on the screen, but there will be some that's not there. For those who are just joining us, we are building up, been building up this whole month to toward what we call in Saw 13. Now, Saw 13 stands for Spiritual Awakening Weekend. It's February 1st through 3rd. Now, today, our eighth time, we have, uh, uh, we have visited this subject, and we've visited subjects like the notion of an awakening, the need of an awakening, the neglect of an awakening, the nemesis of an awakening, the nature of an awakening, the never of awakening, and last Wednesday night, the nearness of an awakening. And this morning, we come to the navigation toward or to an awakening. The navigation. Hey, we know what the word navigate means. We, it means to find our way around. In fact, if, um, if you get on an airplane or you get on a ship or something like that, there's normally going to be one staff member there that's called the navigator. And that navigator is responsible for knowing where the ship is, whether it's a boat, whether it's a plane. He's responsible for knowing where the ship is. If it's a, if it's a vessel on water, he's responsible for keeping that ship clear of rocks and reefs and wrecks and uh, to navigate to the place that, that they should want to go. Today, as I think about this text, as I think about the navigation to an awakening, I have a real deep prayer. My personal prayer is that you and I, like never before, will listen to Him, our navigator. Listen to that Holy Spirit, the Lord, that navigator, to help us navigate our way to a spiritual awakening, the likes of which we don't know anything about. Now, I'm going to confess to you before I launch off of this message that one of my favorite preachers is the late Adrian Rogers. We were privileged to meet Adrian on a couple of times, particularly on a couple of cruise ships where he was preaching. In fact, we were there with him 13 months before he passed. And I will just tell you my last recollection is that I wondered how healthy he really was, and he would never let on that he was not feeling well. But I read Dr. Rogers even today in his absence, and when I read his messages, particularly the message from which our message today is inspired, my heart yearns and burns for God's church, God's people, to experience a revival, a renewal, an awakening. When I read Dr. Rogers, it keeps me from wanting to toss in the towel or give up or back up because I believe if God can do it in His Word at that time, He can do it here and now. Do you believe that? When we get to 1 Kings 18, we find the nation of Israel in a mess. They're in trouble. And they're in trouble because once again, they're under God's judgment. And the reason that they are once again under God's judgment is because there is sin, sin personally and sin nationally. Their, their leaders, are you ready for this? Their leaders, king and queen, Ahab and Jezebel, 
have led them away from God. In fact, if you go back to chapter 16, just a little context, if you go back to chapter 16, end of cha- the end of chapter 16, it says something like this, And Ahab did more to lead his people away from God than did any of the kings previous. I want to pause here and say something that some of you are not going to like because you think it's political. And there's not a political bone in my body about this. But I'm afraid that when I think of the evil king leading country away from the Lord, I think of America today. Oh, but let's don't lay it at just at the feet of this of a presidential couple. What I will tell you is that is that it also goes on in chapter 16 to tell us that they built altars to false gods, to Baals, and they worshiped them. Once again, we're right back to the United States of America worshiping at the altar of our finances, of the altar of our affluence, at the altars of other gods. And it is, if you back in chapter 16, it is in the context of this country being so much under God's judgment that a man named Elijah appears on the scene in chapter 17. Elijah, we don't know a lot about him. He just appeared on the scene. God called him. And the first, called him. And the first thing that he did was he pronounced a famine on the land. Now, we need to understand that a famine on the land literally means that God's judgment is on the land because of their sin. Now, if you properly understand Old Testament theology, when the rain didn't fall, it was God's judgment on the land. And some of you go, well, how do you know that? Well, let's start here. Just stay where you are in, in uh, uh, 1 Kings. But let me just give you this scripture so you can know. It's Deuteronomy 11, 16, and 17. God is speaking to the children of Israel. And he said, be careful that you are not enticed to turn aside worship or to bow down other gods. Then the Lord's anger will burn against you. He will close the sky and there will be no rain. And the rain will not yield its produce. And you will perish quickly from the good land the Lord is giving you. Now, we'll just leave that scripture up there for just a second. Just kind of let it burn in. But, but as we get to this point and we understand that the, the nation of Israel was under God's judgment, these are God's chosen people. Is it any wonder that America is under God's judgment today? Folks, if we're going to navigate God's promises, God's word, and God's desire to a spiritual awakening, here's what I want to say to you. We have to recognize a couple of things. First of all, in the United States of America, in the state of Alabama, in the city of Hueytown, quite likely in the church called Hueytown Baptist, there's a famine of God's presence. There's a spiritual famine, the the lack of which we have not seen in years. And I will go on to say a second thing about that. It is because of the great sin in the land. Go, wait a minute, Brother Jerry. That's you telling us we're sinners. You're telling us people in our town sin, our friends and our neighbors and our family. You're telling us people in this country are sinners. I am, and you know why? Because we're told in God's word. Now you keep your Bible where it is. I want to give you one more scripture. Before we turn turn the page to this next scripture, let me tell you about it. It's written by Paul. It is his very last letter, and it is toward the end of his last letter. It is written to Timothy. And I want you to see this second Timothy passage. But know this, Paul writes, difficult days, difficult times will come in the last days. Watch this. People will be lovers of self, lovers of money, 
boastful, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, without love for what is good. Every time I read that scripture, I kind of think Paul could look down the timeline of, of humanity and he could peer into the 21st century. He could peer into the hearts of these people And I submit the very reason there is such a void of the outpouring of God's Spirit is because He has declared a famine on this land which I believe won't end until His people return to Him. We've been talking ever since. I will just share this with you. Deacons and I started talking about it back in October about the need for an awakening. And I want to say this, a spiritual awakening will not come easy or quickly because it requires us to navigate some very troubling waters. If we were a ship, we'd have to navigate around those rocks, wrecks, and reefs. We'd have to navigate around the recklessness of our way. And it is against that backdrop that we're going to stand and read 21 verses of chapter 18. And then we will pick up later in the message and and take the rest of the story. If you will, if you can, would you stand to honor the reading of God's word? 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 1. Now, I will remind you that Elijah pronounced the um, famine, start chapter 17, and then he followed God's leadership and left the country. So here we go, chapter 18. Listen intently. This is God's word. After a long time, the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year. Go and present yourself to Ahab. I will send rain on the surface of the land. So Elijah went to present himself to Ahab. There were, the famine was severe in Samaria. Ahab called for Obadiah, who was in charge of the palace. Obadiah was a man who greatly feared the Lord and took a hundred prophets and hid them, fifty men to a cave, and provided them with food and water when Jezebel slaughtered the Lord's prophets. Ahab said to Obadiah, Go throughout the land to every spring of water and to every wadi. Perhaps we'll find grass so we can keep the horses and mules alive and not have to destroy any cattle. They divided the land between them in order to cover it, Ahab went one way by himself and Obadiah the other way by himself. While Obadiah was walking along the road, Elijah suddenly met him. When Obadiah uh, recognized him, he fell fell with his face to the ground and said, It is you, my lord, Elijah. Is it you, my lord, Elijah? It is, he replied. Go and tell your lord, Elijah, is here. But Obadiah said, What sin have I committed that you are 
handing your servant over to Ahab to put me to death. As the Lord your God lives, there is no nation or kingdom where my Lord has not sent someone to search for you. And when they said he is not here, he made that kingdom or nation swear they had not found you. Now you say, go tell your Lord Elijah is here. But when I leave you, the Spirit of the Lord may carry you off to some place I don't know. Then when I report it to Ahab and he doesn't find you, he will kill me. But I, your servant, have feared the Lord from my youth. Wasn't it reported to my Lord when, what I did when Jezebel slaughtered the prophets, the Lord's prophets? I hid a hundred of the prophets of the Lord, fifty of them men to the cave, and I provided them with food and water. Now you say, go tell your Lord Elijah's here. He will kill me. Then Elijah said, as the Lord of the host lives before whom I stand today, I will present myself to Ahab. Obadiah went to meet Ahab and report to him. Then Ahab went to meet Elijah, and when Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, Is that you, you destroyer of Israel? He, Elijah, replied, I have not destroyed Israel, but you and your father's house have, because you have abandoned the Lord's commandments and followed the Baals. Now summon all Israel to meet me at Mount Carmel along with the 450 prophets of Baals and the 400 prophets of Azra who eat at Jezebel's table. By the way, that's 850, not 450. So Ahab summoned all the Israelites and gathered the prophets at Mount Carmel. Then Elijah approached all the people and said, How long will you hesitate between two opinions? If Yahweh is God, follow him. But if Baal, follow him. But the people didn't answer him a word. Let's pray together. Father, may we today hear no voice but yours. May you allow the blood of Jesus to cover this building that all distraction and demonic distractions can be taken away and are not allowed to mess with our minds and our hearts. Help us hear from you in your name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. If you keep that Bible open, I want to refer you back to the first six verses of this chapter. The first six verses of this chapter give us a good situation of what's going on with King Ahab, Obadiah, and Israel. It was bad. It was getting worse. May I just say this to you? Please listen. It's bad getting worse. Such is the case anytime there's a famine of God's presence in the land. Such is there anytime there's a famine of God's manifest presence in our heart. We see that as we begin the chapter that God comes to Elijah and he says, Hey, Elijah, I want you to go tell, I want you to go tell that troubled, bad king Ahab, I want you to go tell him something for me. Tell him things are changing. Tell him there's been a famine in the land, but the rain's coming. I'm going to send rain. Now, you know why this is significant? Because the Baals were supposed to be in charge of the rain. The God of the Baals were supposed to be in charge of the rain. And God said, I'll show them. There'll be no rain. 
And then he said, there will be rain. And so what he is saying, he is saying, listen, where I have been absent, I am about to show up. Folks, that is the desire of your pastor today. Where God has been absent, I'm praying that he will show up. I'm praying that he'll show up in my heart. I hope he'll show up. Pray that he'll show up in your heart. I pray he'll show up in this building. And I pray that it'll it'll explode to this community. But how do we navigate the waters to get to the point where he shows up? I think there's some things that we can pull out of this story. Thank you, Dr. Rogers, for, as you're in glory, for pointing these out to me. And I want to point them out to you. Here's what I want to say to you. If there's to be a spiritual awakening, we need to first of all recognize the enemies, the enemies of an awakening, the enemies of an awakening. Now, any time that you're going to navigate anything, you better know where your obstacles are. You better know where your uh, enemies are. You better know where your roadblocks are. And I suggest to you that there are four. You've, you've already found it on the back of your building. I suggest to you that there are four enemies. First enemy are the compromisers. That is represented by this man, Obadiah. Obadiah, watch this. He's supposed to be a prophet of the Lord. He's supposed to be one of the good guys. He's a man who says he loves the Lord. He's a man who hid a hundred prophets, and he fed them during this period of time. He is, he's obviously done good things. People think he go, he's good, but he goes along to get along. And here's the deal. The problem with Obadiah, like so many compromisers, is that they're wearing the name of God while they're aligning with the devil. He's in charge of the palace for crying out loud. He's in, he is in cahoots with Ahab. When push came to shove, he decided he is going with the world. You say, Brother Jerry, with the world? Well, there's not a more wicked man in all of Scripture than Ahab. Oh, Obadiah found himself sitting with him and working with him. I'll tell you two things about Obadiah. First of all, he became very worldly. I wonder today if people bearing the name of Christ are in this compromised position because we've become worldly. Billy Sunday said, said, a worldly Christian makes about as much sense as a heavenly devil. You see, the truth is the compromisers becomes friends with the world. And you know what James says about that? He says, if you're friends with the world, you're an enemy to God. Brother Jerry, are you putting down Obadiah's? No. Maybe I am. But I feel sympathy, pity for the Obadiah's. They got one foot in the church, one foot in the world. They're miserable in both places. They find them, the Obadiahs, the compromisers, find themselves doing the world's business. And they find themselves doing things, if you're really a believer and you follow and trusted Christ, like maybe Obadiah thought he had, then you know what you find yourself doing? You find yourself doing things that's beneath what God wants you to do. In our scripture it says that Ahab said, Come here, Obadiah. We need some grass. Would you go one way, I'll go the other, and let's look for some grass so our livestock don't die. And you say, well, that's okay. Well, truly, if we are 
children of the living God, instead of going looking for grass, we ought to be on our face praying for God to send rain. Do you believe God can send rain when you pray? If you're the one that prayed the rain down for the week and a half, stop it. We've had enough. You see, folks, in the face of praying for spiritual awakening, I talk to some people who have decided to search for grass instead of praying to the Lord of the rain for rain. We've come to the place in modern-day 21st century American church where we can give a little more. If the church needs a little more effort, we'll give it. Needs a little more money, we'll give it. Needs a little more this or that, we'll give it. Instead of praying for showers of blessings and then being faithful to all these things he tells us to do. The compromisers are those folks who have compromised themselves and now nobody will listen. And we'll get to that in a second. That's the first enemy, Obadiah. The second enemy are corrupt, represented by King Ahab. You see, Ahab really fits the bill for a corrupt person. He is the one who leads others to see things through his eyes. Now, we could stay here all day with us describing Ahab, but I want to, to just bring one, one characteristic to you. That corrupt person, while they're doing all the damage, they're always trying to blame somebody else. Hello? Ahab's been out of the country. I mean, excuse me, Elijah's been out of the country. God calls Elijah back and he comes back. The country is going, excuse the terminology, to hell in a handbasket. And the first thing he says, he says, Elijah, you destroyer of this country. Don't you just love it? You can tell Elijah would not make it in the 21st century church because the preacher of the 21st century church, when accused of doing something bad, he's just supposed to say, yes, you're right. I'm so sorry. Elijah didn't do that. He said, let me tell you something, King Ahab. It wasn't me that destroyed this country. It was you and your family. It may be time to start doing some finger pointing from the pulpit again. But here's what I will tell you and what I think you know. Corrupt people exist today just like Ahab. There are some in America. There are some in Alabama. There are some in Hueytown. Quite likely there are some inside the church. Corrupt people, people who see things through their eyes, people who, they, there may even be people in this congregation who believe that our push, our desire, our prayer for spiritual awakening is making trouble. I just want to say this. If a spiritual awakening makes trouble for you, you need some trouble made for you. Because, you see, Jesus died for us. Jesus died for us. Not that we could have our own way, but that we could live his way. We could live above the fray. That we could find hope and peace and joy and love and blessedness in him. If you get on board and want a spiritual awakening in your life, you find yourself at the altar praying for God to forgive you from those ways that, that you've sinned. You know what you're going to have? You have people who don't like you. Hello? Adrian Rogers said this. He said, um, 
You are known by people who don't like you. I know that's true of me. And it is probably the only thing that gives me solace in times of struggle. You see, if the Bible is true, and I believe it is, if you serve the Lord with your whole heart, there are going to be people who don't like you. I'm just going to flip over here. You don't have to turn there. And I just want to say this to you. This is the words of Jesus. Everybody wants to be spoken well of by everybody. Everybody wants to be liked by everybody. Everybody does whatever it takes to keep the fray down. Watch what Jesus said. Woe to you. Woe to you. When all the people speak well of you. Because this is the way their ancestors used to treat the false prophets. When you pick up the men in the Bible, when you just find when they stand on the on the scripture, you find that there are folks inside the beltway who don't care for them. As bad as the Ahabs are, those who are corrupt, those and then those who are compromised. I'll just tell you the corrupt people are not the ones that are going to stop an awakening. But I'll come back to that in a second. There's a third group of people, complacent people. Now, you know the story. The complacent represents the crowd. You know the story. He carried them up on Mount Carmel. And don't you love this? He said, if Yahweh is God, serve him. And I will say that to you today. If God is God, serve him. If Baal is Baal, if the gods of this world, serve him. And how long are you going to limp or hesitate or halt? How long you'll stay between these two gods? And watch this. Isn't this telling? The last verse of, of, of uh, the last phrase of verse twenty-one. But the people didn't answer him a word. They kept their mouth shut. They took the Fifth Amendment. They straddled the fence. Their commitment was to themselves, not to Baal or not to God. And I would say this to us. Elijah's question reverberates down humanity's timeline. How long will you limp between these two opinions? Candidly, if you don't care, it don't matter. Apathy and complacency are killing the church today. But I want to make a... I want to make a, a I suggested to you again, back to Dr. Rogers, that, that he made burn deeply in my heart. Maybe one reason that those folks stood on that hill and they made no decision, maybe the reason that they made no decision is the same reason people are not flocking to Christ today in his church today. He said perhaps the reason that people didn't, are not responding is because they've not seen enough in the life of those who say they know Jehovah God to convince them. Could that be our problem? Could that be the problem of today? People don't care to be a part of the church or come to Christ 
because of what they haven't seen in the lives of those who profess faith. They see people sitting on the fence. They see people wanting to be liked by everyone. They see people standing for nothing. They see people winking at sin. They see people making excuses for the Bible. I believe the Bible, but they see all of this and more. I wonder if that's what makes people complacent to the gospel. Well, there's so much more here, but we need to move on for time. There is one last group here, but hang on just a second up there, Randy, before we do this. There's one last group here. And if you got your Bible open, verse 30. Elijah said to all the people, come near me. Now, he's up on Mount Carmel, by the way, from verses 22 to uh, uh, 29. is where the false prophets put the... Uh, uh, put their sacrifice up there. They prayed all day. Elijah made fun of them. Nothing happened. And now at verse 30 says, Elijah said to all the people, come near me. So all the people approached him. Then he repaired the Lord's altar that had been torn down. He took 12 stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob to whom the word of the Lord had come saying, Israel will be your name. And he built an altar with the stones in the name of Yahweh. He made a trench around the large enough to hold about four gallons of water. He arranged the wood, cut up the bull, placed it on the wood. He, he said, fill up water buckets, and they poured, it on the, they poured it on the offering to be burned and, and on the wood. Then he said a second time. And they did it a second time, a third time. They did it a third time, and water ran all around the altar. He even filled the trench with water. Now, here's the thing. The fourth group has already appeared and, dis- already appeared and, dis- and gone off the picture. And that is, and I want to just, just mention this, the fourth group that's going that's to be an enemy of an awakening is what's called a competitor. That's those false prophets. That's those prophets who see things the other way. That's the prophets that are spoken of from verse 22 to 29. There are 450, there are 400, so there are 800 men who are going to compete against God. Now watch this. Here's all I want you to see. I want you to see you had 850 over here, and you have one puny little prophet over here. How many of you like that odds, 850 to 1? Anybody like those odds? Nah. But now watch this. It's better than that because you have 850 to one little prophet plus one giant God. Are you ready? Those odds are still valid today. You have Elijah who surrendered his life to the Lord. And, and Elijah knew in his spirit, it didn't matter how many of those they were, because he knew this in his spirit, what we can read today and know in our hearts, greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. All we got to do is trust him and come to him in full submission and surrender, and he'll respond to us. The enemies. Let's move quickly to the essentials of an awakening. If we're going to navigate this, we have to navigate around those essentials. And by the way, you remember those four? You have the competitors. You have the complacent. You have the corrupt. None of those three have the ability to stop a spiritual awakening in this place. I want to say that again. You have the competitors. You have the complacent. You have the corrupt. None of those three have the ability to stop spiritual awakening. The only one. Who does? Are the compromisers. Those who have one foot in the church and one foot in the world. And they're pulling the church toward the world. So if that's, if that's the truth, how do we get, how do we navigate to get to these essentials? Well, he gives us 
four essentials right here. These are things that are required. Watch this. We just read it, verse 40, uh, 30 to 32. We see that the church has to have solidarity. Are you listening? Hello? Solidarity. When he called the people together, come near me, and then he took the 12 stones. This was a symbol of God's people coming together in unity around the altar. Now, what is the altar that we come in unity around today, folks? It has to be the old rugged cross. You see, at the old rugged cross, the ground is level. When you get to the cross, all the things of this world do not matter. Turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in His wonderful face, and then the things of this world will grow strangely dim. And I'm just going to say this to us. The things of this world will never grow dim until we turn our eyes on Jesus. When we think of solidarity, we think of unity. Psalmist writes how good and pleasant it is for God's people to dwell together in unity. When our Lord prayed his, his prayer, I'm not talking about our Father who art in heaven, the model prayer. I'm talking about the real Lord's prayer found in John 17. The prayer that he prayed when he was on his face in the garden, one of the big aches of his heart was, Lord, make my people one, make my disciples one like we are one. Unity was important to our Lord. In fact, if you move over to Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit did not come until King James says, and when they were all together and in one accord in one place. You see, the truth is, Satan would rather start a fuss in a church than he had increased the sale of pornography or alcohol or drugs because Satan knows that if God's people are not walking in unity and harmony, they're powerless. He calls us to solidarity. The second thing he calls us to is separation. You can read on down there. and You see uh, uh, in verse 32, it talks about Elijah making a trench. You know what that trench represented? It? That on the altar was holy. That outside the trench was unholy. That that was on the altar was inside the line of distinction. This line of distinction separated that which was holy from that which was not holy. If there's to be an awakening, if God's going to change our hearts and lives, it will become, it will come because God's people know the difference between that is which is holy and that which is worldly. It'll be because God's people, God's people are separate enough to embrace the holy. When the world tells their ugly jokes, when the world drinks their alcohol, when the world uses their vulgar language, we, as God's people, must be different. You can't drink a man's beer and then share Christ with him. You can't tell a man's dirty joke and then share Christ with him. Brother Jerry, you draw a line pretty much. It's right around that altar. You want to know whether you should say something? You probably should say, now, when I get through with this, will I be able to tell them about the love of Jesus? There should be a separateness. Come out and be separate. The third thing I see here quickly is sacrifice. 
This is interesting to me. This is an unpopular world today, but it's a biblical word and it's a required word and we still don't want to hear it. Verse 33 says that he arranged the wood and then he cut up the bull and he placed it on the, on the altar. Now watch this. As long as that bull was alive, he was worth something to the world. He could have sold him at auction. He could have gotten real money for him. But once he cut him up, his worldly value left. But now he was given to God. So watch this. What becomes useless to the world in our sacrifice becomes priceless to God. How long has it been since you sacrificed anything to him? Sacrifice means giving that which you really don't think you can give to him. How long has it been since you reached down in your pocket and you took out your checkbook and you wrote a check that you really didn't think you could, that you could afford? Here's what I'll say to young and old alike. You think you can't afford a tithe. You know what God says? Test me. You don't think you can afford to return his tithe to him? You think you keep it in his pocket? He says, try me. And see. How long has it been since you have said no to a ministry opportunity? God's called you there and you've said no to it. How long has it been since you really sacrificed to give him your best? You see, that's what Elijah did. He took that fine prize bull, cut him up, became priceless, it became useless to the world and priceless to the Father. I'm convinced that one of the reasons that that awakening revival is withheld from the church in America is because we're not willing to sacrifice much or nothing. We tip him with our money. We tip him with our time. We go, if we have absolutely nothing else to do, we'll assemble together with the church. And the Bible says, forsake not the assembling of yourselves together. But I want to say one other thing about this sacrifice. It was a bloody mess. Hello? You just don't, have you ever been to a hog killing or a cow killing? It's a bloody mess. There's blood everywhere. And you say, how gross. But let me just say this to you. We need to understand that power only comes through the blood. There's still power in the blood. There is redemption, redeeming power. Bible says without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin. Revelation tells us they overcame them by the blood of the Lamb. Folks, we need the power in the blood in this place today. The sin in your life and in my life that keeps us from encountering God in a fresh way can only be dealt with, forgiven, and eradicated by the blood of the Lamb. It's only through the blood that we can find forgiveness. So you got them? From our text, solidarity, separation, sacrifice are indeed the essentials. Oh, but there's one more. We'll call it supplication. Now, you know what supplication is. It's a fancy word for prayer. The truth is, no revival, no awakening has ever come absent prayer. Our plan is next Monday through next Friday, we will have this worship center open for you to come and go if you can. Hopefully, we'll have some prayer stations around, but it will be open for you to come and pray. The prayer room will be open for you to come and pray. 
Here's what I will say. There will be no awakening if there was no prayer. Elijah got everything right on the altar. Now, what did he do? Did he play, pray one of these long-winded, wordy prayers? You know, Jesus said only the pagans, only the pagans pray those kind of prayers. And they'll think they're going to be heard for their much words. If you read the prayer that Elijah prayed, it depends on which translation, it's about five dozen words. Nothing ostentatious. It's all pointed to him. It was a prayer of focus. It was a prayer of faith. It was a prayer that had a foundation in the belief that God could do what God said he could do. Elijah had now met God's standards. He had, he had stood against the 850 prophets. He had now repaired the altar. He had called the people together. He had made the sacrifice. He had drawn the line where if any fire comes, it has to be of God. And he expected God to show up. I don't believe I don't believe awakening comes without these items in our lives, not just collectively, personally. Can you understand why God hadn't showed up? With all that said, I want to end with just a thought for us. And that is the expectations of or for an awakening. Now, two questions loom large when I say this. The first question is, what did Elijah expect on Mount Carmel? What did he really expect? Can I just suggest some things? See, he expected God to be as good as his word. He expected God to fight his battles. He expected God to prove himself to be Jehovah God. He expected God to show up and do what only God could do because he expected Jehovah to be God. What do you expect today? What is God doing in your life? So I ask you. That's what Elijah expect, expected. What do you expect? For crying out loud, time we get through the month of January, 13 messages headed toward, headed toward a revival, an awakening. Do you expect God to show up in your life? Do you expect God to show up? Do you expect yourself to do business with God, or is it always for Brother Jerry or Brother Teddy or Brother James or Brother Van? Let me just give you a flash. If I've not had your attention, listen to the statement. God desires to do business with every person in this building. Think about expectations. You know what I'm praying for? You know what I expect? I expect two things right from the Scripture. First thing I expect is fire. Fire. The fire fell. He prayed that fire represents God's judgment on sin. 
My personal prayer is that God shows up in such power. I want to say that again. My personal prayer that God shows up in such power that there's nobody seated here. That everybody is crowded around the altar. Not talking to each other, but talking to Him. Oh, Brother Jerry, I don't do that. Well, there's some people in this room has not been to the altar of God since you got saved 10, 15, 20, 30 years ago. Because there's no need. May I say this to you? You will not get that from this. You see, we need to be we need to be presenting ourselves before God. And I pray that the fire falls and, and convicts us of our sin of unfaithfulness, our sin of inconsistency, our sin of a critical spirit, our sin of a hard heart, our sin of winking at immorality, our sin of just simply not loving Jesus. I'm praying for a miracle to transpire. And after the fire falls, I'm praying for the water. I'm praying for the water. If you if you go back to to eighteenth uh, um, chapter of Kings, you remember they were in the middle of a of a land drought. After Elijah won the victory, in verse forty two it says, "So Elijah then went to eat and drink." So Ahab went to eat and drink, but Elijah went up to the mountain, to the summit of Carmel. And what did he do? He didn't give up. He didn't let up. He didn't back up. He bowed down to the ground because no rain had fallen yet, only the fire of God's judgment. Said to his servant, go check. I don't see anything. Do it seven times. And then finally he comes back and he said, there's a cloud as small as a man's hand coming from the sea. In a little while the sky dropped dark. In a little while, there was a downpour. You know, folks, for years we have sung kind of flippantly, showers of blessing. Showers of blessing we need in that light, fuzzy, and feel-good kind of way. My prayer is, Holy Spirit, rain down. Rain down, comforter and friend, we need your touch again. Holy Spirit, rain down, rain down. Let your power fall, let your voice be heard. Come and change our lives as we stand on your word. Holy Spirit, rain down. When the Spirit falls, when the Spirit falls, lives are changed. Where the Spirit falls, the Spirit calls. An awakening befalls. I desire to navigate these waters. I want God to do here what He's done nowhere else. How about you? Let's pray together.